Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Ralph. Uh, well, how are you? Good. You're in Europe. Yeah, in uh, Utrecht, as always. Ah, yes, Utrecht. Yeah. Beautiful this time of year, I'm sure. It's not bad. It's not so summery, but it's comfortable. And uh, um, mm. well, actually, you know, New York right now sometimes is 35, so it's almost. I treat 35 as if it's a snowstorm. You just don't go outside. 35 degrees Celsius? As a yeah. Snow- yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, interesting. Yeah, it's too hot. Um, we have had only one hot day really here. <clears throat> but the West Coast in North America got baked. Um, yeah. <laughs> Flip the script. The weather podcast. But it, apparently, <clears throat> global warming. There you go. Yeah, here it is. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, I I, I do. Someone I know has a friend of my friend. Who knows if these stories are true, right? But a friend of a friend has a chain of clothing stores in the Netherlands and said he hasn't been selling those really thick uh, winter coats anymore because the winters are so mild. So, that's global warming. Yeah. There you go. That's like our tag. Like, that's global warming. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) unfortunately, people are like, Losing their homes, there's wildfires. It's yeah. crazy. Um, but the, but the, like this, I mean, this whining. is all anecdotal, uh, you yeah. know. The, the spring has been quite mild in, in New York, like mm. nice, comfortable, and normally the mean part of summer kicks in much sooner. So it was just really wonderful for a long time. And in the Netherlands, it was quite rainy from what I hear and cold. Like I just mm-hmm. hang out, hung out with my cousin, and he said in mid-May he was still wearing his... Winter coat, taking his kids to school, and mm-hmm. we're officially like uh, old people. Though, if we start saying stuff like uh, we, we're so, like, I've never seen, I haven't seen the weather like this in yeah. 30 or, years. or once we start talking about, you know, what the price is of a loaf of bread? Mm-hmm. It's pretty expensive. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Wonder Bread is still cheap, but I bet you go for the nice bread. Yeah, I don't go for that sawdust stuff. So yeah, I no. mostly go for baguettes. That's I'm Euro that way. Okay. I've never seen a European with a baguette, actually. No, but... <laughs> it's like such a stereotype that you... <laughs> Under your arm? They've moved on. They moved on a long time ago to sourdough and then beyond. <laughs> yeah. But uh, so what do you put on the on the baguette? I'll do all kinds of things. I did like some peach, chicken, onion thing the other day. Uh, cheese usually, just some cheese. Um, just, yeah. Bread and cheese is... This is, like, this is it, the most boring podcast. I know. This is, we're going cheese hardcore. Yeah. Butter sometimes. No, but it, it's incredible. that, that uh, I don't know if it's because I grew up with it. Every time I get to the Netherlands, I want a slice of bread with the Dutch cheese. But Yeah. Uh, it's an incredible entity of uh, deliciousness. Yeah. There's only one cheese that I think is dubious on this earth, and it's in Norway. It's called brown cheese. And I apologize to our Norwegian listeners, but... Um, you apologize like, that you're about to insult them in their deepest core. It's like a sweet cheese. Like the cheese oh. has caramel. It's got caramelized sugar in it. And um, in a way, it it's, like, it's like the Nutella of Norway. Um, oh, weird. Yeah, I think I mean, it can Nor- be good. <laughs> I don't think any... N- N- Norway is a big exporter of their cuisine, so... I, I, I'd, hmm. I'm prejudiced, but I'm imagining it's not the best food in the world. Well, I think cardamom, um, cardamom cappuccinos are like they put cardamom on everything there. I think those are great, and they do some great pastry work. 
Mm. I don't know. Anyway, I, so I, to, I always experiment with chili, and one time I put some cinnamon in the chili. I just oh yeah, like, oh, good maybe, idea. Maybe it'll be good. And Christina was so mad. She's like, "How dare she's very fundamental about beans. Like beans can only be with garlic or onion and some pepper." Oh. And, oh no, I've definitely done what you just described, like cinnamon yeah. as a. But she was so pissed. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, there we go. America so, versus. Europe. Yeah. Oh, you know what? You're in Europe during this Euro Cup craze too. That's the other. Uh, that's the other chit chat news. And yeah, it's like England versus Italy. Are people? I've, going I've crazy? avoided. I've avoided football since I was a kid. I just always mm-hmm. thought it was completely stupid. Yeah. Okay. Let's leave it at that. Yeah. <laughs> so we, now that we've alienated. No, I know it's it's, it's funny because it's it, food. It, yeah, I'll, I'll be in in a cab and like some small talk with the driver, and it's like, oh, where are you from? Netherlands. Oh, but your name doesn't sound Dutch. Well, my mom's from Brazil. Mm-hmm. Netherlands and Brazil, you must really like soccer. Oh, yeah. And, and you'd say soccer nope. and then they'd cringe. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Um, okay. So you wanted to talk about NFTs uh, today. Yeah, I, but I wanted not to. Not really. Yeah, a kind of. Side of it. Well, let's say this is not a podcast for tips and tricks, but more of a reflection on how we consume art. And I think NFTs was a moment that we sort of come to terms with, okay, we're all screen addicted, let's admit it. Mm-hmm. That, that To me, that was the, the NFT thing. And I still think a lot of people make installations and experiences that are viewed by maybe, you know, a very successful performance, maybe a thousand people see it. Yeah. Or I, I, I showed my work on Times Square and, that's awesome. It's amazing. But what really lives on is the photo or the video. Mm-hmm. And then, so you make something that's optimized for the small screen. For the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. This sort of, where do we live? Where does our mind live? Yeah. So the challenge here is like, let's not talk about the money because that's like, let's imagine everything was free, which it was. And it, it is, and it still is. Actually, that you know, in in regards to free screens. to view, yeah, free to view, yeah. Let, let's talk about that. I think that that's a worthwhile challenge. And let, I like, I think the way to to frame up the challenge is like, let's just pretend. And I know that's you know, a bunch of people are like, you can't pretend. How dare you? But let's just pretend that money wasn't the issue. Let's pretend actually that as any category evolves, it gets commodified and eventually it becomes transactional. Like maybe we're heading back towards zero. You don't want to hear that. But anyway, let's not talk about money um, and see what else it might be. Yeah, you you can talk about money if you want. But for me, the real interest in why money appeared is that I think that the way we encounter culture and the way we absorb culture and the way we share culture is all on, on the screen in some form. Mm-hmm. And then when you go to an opening, like slowly the world is opening up, you might go see an exhibition. How much of that exhibition mentally is even through the screen as you're taking photos of things you like as a memory yeah. and you're making notes on your phone and how much is this connected, uh, uh, this window into the database and this window into the shared experience you know that that uh, title of the book, the Ways of Seeing. Is that the title? Yeah, John Berger. Yeah, mm-hmm. I just think you know, there's a, there's a lot of media theory, like how did photography influence painting? How did the television influence the hive mind? All this stuff, but 
I just it felt I think the lockdown was just a historic moment where we were really confronted with what has been building for a hundred years. Yeah. So I think like one of the first things to get the, you know, as a point would be that, yeah, for more than a hundred years, probably forever. It's a profound there, change. Yeah. There has been, there have been tensions in the, you know, kind of division of labor that have pulled us apart from each other. Right. Like that, the idea of isolation and layers of abstraction. Like, yeah. yeah. And mediation, but like these, it's a tension, right? So like you have Marshall McLuhan saying things like in the 1960s, technology makes us a global village. So now like when he says global village, he's saying someone in Ohio or Idaho or whatever can, you know, can be. Why, why is Ohio always the, the whenever people want to say like someone in some <laughs> piece of shit area of the world where nothing happens. It's like, poor. Maybe it's really fun there. That's fair. I, no, I, but I, 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 I feel like whenever people... Whenever it comes, this is a quite a tangent. Or is, it's the middle of the country. That's why I know. But poor guy. Maybe it's really fun there. I don't know. But I didn't. Say, I actually think it's probably wild. You know, it's great. Like there's tailgating parties. There's uh, yeah. You know, go well, bucks, it, they, Buccaneers. I think Dave Chappelle <laughs> lives there, and he has he's doing a lot of stand up there. So it's probably yeah. Good, Dave Chappelle. Good laughs. Yeah. 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 I went to school in the Midwest, so I feel like I'm allowed to talk about it. Okay. Um, but. Uh, yeah, so the idea of Global Village, obviously, though, is that like we can have a shared experience even though yeah. we're on opposite and, sides of the globe. And I always felt like there was a huge potential audience of people who are not comfortable or not uh, can't afford to come to major cities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but not only that, like even just news getting out of a city, like, you know, and culture is a form of news, right? Like cultural genes and the idea that you know, you used to be able to travel the world, and this is like tied up in globalization. So I apologize. We will get like probably talk a little bit about capitalism. Well, we have to like talk about reality. We have to talk about the world yeah. we live in. We can't deny the the, the how how we grew yeah. up or how we live. Yeah, yeah. Like I grew up in the 1980s and Reagan era politics, and the you know America's was upset that you know factory was getting factories were getting outsourced to cheaper places, right? So like. You know, in terms of manufacturing, the world became like this kind of global supply chain, which we're now seeing actually a lot of that stuff has resulted in the fact that you can't get an iPad Pro or whatever, where it's, you know, there's no trucks available because of the chip shortage. Yeah, yeah, But regardless, like the the idea that the whole world was going to participate in the production of a thing, you know, a thing being a manufacturer thing. Another side tangent, we got a car. Yeah. And it's not a Tesla. Oh, you bought a car? Wait, what? Yeah, okay. we bought a, we bought a emergency mini. podcast. <laughs> but we we have to wait three months because of the chip shortage. And I I wanted the beefed up sound system, but they couldn't put it in because of the chip shortage. So beefed it's up real. sound system. Every Tesla comes standard with the world's best. I know. It, we we decided not to get a Tesla because we don't have a parking spot with the charger. Uh, so so you got some kind of crazy Jeep or something like that? No, no, the Mini. Mini the, Cooper. Yeah, convertible. Oh, wow. That's kind yeah. of your style, I guess. Yeah. I have an but iPhone those, mini, and then the car is a mini, too. And has those huge gauges so that if you you know, you know lose your eyesight, you'll know, always know how fast <laughs> you are. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, anyway, the point I was trying to make is... Chip short. Congratulations. But, like, no, not chip short. Yes, in so much as, like, that's the manufacturer of things, but we often don't discuss that the manufacturer of ideas and or the manufacture of cultural objects also went global and like you know television shows you know used to be regional then they became 
national, then they became global. I'm like watching Lupin on Netflix. It's like the top show in Canada. It's like a French. Yeah, I've seen know, I've seen a few show. episodes. Yeah. Right. And my sister in Vancouver is like, have you watched Lupin? It's amazing. And I'm like, um, and she's like, I'm using it to learn my French better, you know? So like, the, so cultural production also became global. Yeah. And, but um, but what's, what's interesting, I think Netflix is a perfect example because we went from stories around the campfire to theater production and more elaborate theater and vaudeville and whatever. And cinema started. And of course, in the beginning, cinema was really clumsy. It was like a five-minute reel of a train coming at you. And I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure everybody was amazed and that all the theater people said, oh, you can never tell a story on film. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they said that for maybe 50 years. They said, you know, you can't even add sound to a film. It's stupid. Theater is mm-hmm. the real thing. You can smell the actors and you can really feel it. And it's... Yeah. And... and Whenever there's a new paradigm shift of distribution, uh, people who ha- who are invested in the previous iteration are like, oh, that new thing, you know, photography will never become art. Uh, film will never become a real way of telling a story because theater is better. And and in many ways, theater is better, but in the end, convenience wins. And And so now we're at a moment where you might say you have to experience movies at the theater, but everybody's like, no, I just want to binge watch while I'm also tweeting on my phone and shopping on my iPad. And so the, well, yeah. there's, there's, the, there's the idealism of like the perfect experience and then there's the reality. I also think like one of the things that you, the kind of you rattled through there were, you, were different media that they're, that are kind of macro in cultural impact. Um, but there are a bunch of micro ones that sometimes get confused as like a, a net new revolution. Like, so a new technology will come along. How do we know that this technology is going to be meaningful is a dialogue that we go through over and over again. Like I can remember my favorite example is when the Microsoft Connect came out like, yeah, uh, yeah. for the Xbox. And it was like this depth camera. Everyone's like, this changes video games forever. And the truth of the matter was it ignored what you just stated convenience as a factor of like entertainment and so turns out people on couches don't want to get up and wave their arms around (laughs) the whole point of sitting on the couch (laughs) you know and even the nintendo wii which actually was like a best-selling console with you know physical gestural controls and they they were riffing off of that but that did not actually like 10 years on physical you know um Video gaming, like video gaming with gestures, does still exist in VR, but it is not the mac. It wasn't a macro shift. It became a net new niche, and so sometimes you get like new segments that emerge in yeah. categories yeah. versus a whole new media or whole new category of media. And yeah, so I think. Yeah, I mean, but but AR one of the VR things one of those examples. I'm I'm going to leap ahead a little bit now, but go for it. We're all so over the place today. lockdown happened, and we all either did not go to museums or didn't very rarely go to museums. It was really limited. And so museums started doing online screenings of works and timed screenings. And I think museums started to take online more seriously and see it as an exhibition space and not just marketing and ticket sales. Yeah. So it, it maybe to summarize for the museums... Um, you already the, your summary. <laughs> no, the, the website <laughs> became a space and not just a tool. Okay. So, no, but the thing, yeah, uh, but, so yes, but have they actually succeeded? Because I was talking no, to no, a but, last night. Yes and no. But for example, they, they, um, 
the Met and other museums, also because of Black Lives Matter in that moment, they all showed a video by Arthur Jaffa for a week. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that. It was across many yeah. different museums, and they all decided to show that piece that was the perfect piece for that moment. Yeah. And I saw it then, and I had seen it before in an exhibition space, but briefly, because you're walking through the space, and I saw two minutes of it. And then when I saw it at home, it was a much more meaningful experience. It was really from start to finish with good sound on my headphones and full focus. Mm -hmm. And then after that, so that for me, there's a before and after the, the lockdown. That's a clear moment. And so after that, I saw the same piece in the new museum and you step in halfway and you're trying to find the bench and there's someone else sitting on the bench and you're kind of, it's awkward. Mm. And then the projection was huge, but was too close. So you couldn't see the full picture. And it was kind of pixelated because you're up so close. The sound quality was great. But I was really thinking at that moment, like, this is a very expensive installation and it's reaching almost zero people. Yeah. And there's, there's so much potential in this work to reach people and that potential is much stronger online. It's just, it, and this doesn't count for every moving image piece and some have to be seen in, in, in an installation. But th since this is such a political video and kind of low res, and I think that was a perfect example of something that is just more powerful online. Mm. And, and I think what I'm trying to say is that we all think in theory we should see the work in its perfect form, but the reality is we live on our screens. And it, I, I think NFT is a result of that. It's not, it, it's not a, NFT is not an instigator of that. It's a result of that, that we admit that there's value mm. in the online experience. But the counter argument comes, you know, via subscription software, as it always does when I talk on the podcast. But like, <laughs> the counter argument would be, you know, in software, um, we're often debating, like, should we go for more users at a lower price? Mm. Uh, or should we go for fewer, you know, richer users, basically people that will pay us more? And we there's a metric called ARPU, average revenue per user. And then Apple after. somehow succeeded to have have it bo both uh, have the cake and eat it too. Yeah, to get both is like brilliant. And but the argument would be depth versus breadth. And so I think the museum argues, you walk in here, you're going to have a deep experience. And we actually only care. We only want it, it to be one person at a time. But that one person is going to have an experience that they, in, in theory, yeah, yeah, remember yeah. for a lifetime. Yeah. Now, the, the, and the counter argument they'll make is like on the internet or at home, you know, you're competing against Netflix, you know, to use a Clayton Christensen thing, you're hiring entertainment into your home. And so you're not really going for depth and it's not set up properly. So, you you know, you maybe you watch 10 seconds of it, you skim ahead because you can fast forward. Like they don't have a fast forward control at the museum you know, all of these factors, yeah. like yeah. They're forf that forfeit of control is a forfeit of e experience in their minds. Now, th the question is whether that's true or not, right? Like it's kind of Exactly. Actually, so that's the weird thing. Yeah. Like where, if if we're trained to build all this emotional connection to things we see on our devices, and maybe a lot of people, I, I would love to do a survey, but I bet a lot of people feel self-conscious in a museum looking at work with other people next to them. And... Uh, so I I don't think there's a clear answer which one is better, but I think for some people, the home experience is more powerful. I'm, yeah, I'm going to make a, an interesting argument. Well, that's a really great way for me to set it up. <laughs> but like, you know, so because I, I was a video artist purely for the first part of my art career, 
And I hated installing in both museums, galleries, where they had like a curtain and a dark room, like the ideal conditions for watching the work. For exactly the reason the black you described. The black box, they call it. The black box was also the box that no one was going to the wanted to go in. It was like a torture chamber, basically. Like, it might as well have been waterboarding behind those Well, curtains, first of like, all, you, you walk into the black box not knowing if you're at the beginning or the middle or the end of the work. Exactly. So there's, there's no indicator or timeline or something like that. Sometimes and we'll then, have timed ones, And sometimes it's, it's, it's so dark that you, you really don't know if there's a bench and you don't know if there's other people. And so it's all kind of a very... Like in, in movie theaters, they figured out you need these little lights to know where your seat is and maybe someone will help you with a flashlight. And there's mm -hmm. none of that in the black box in the museum. Oh, yeah. It would be interesting to see movie theaters take on the museum model. For yeah, exactly. Works, like, is... like imagine they made all the chairs black and low so you can't see them. And you no, don't no, know no. if you're no, in the no middle of the movie. No backs on the chairs, just yeah. benches. <laughs> and, and you're not sure if you're in the middle of the movie. You're not sure if you're sitting in front of someone that you're blocking their view. A lot of times people just sit on the floor, too, which is yeah. like, I've always found hilarious. Like, <laughs> it's extremely uncomfortable. Well, and, and, and the whole ironic thing is those people might have spent a lot of money to come to this expensive part of the world, mm -hmm. and then this building is in the most expensive zip code, and they're like, you know what? We don't need furniture. You can just sit on the floor. Yeah, do like a Google search for biennial video art or something like that, and you'll probably <laughs> see pictures like uh, blue tinted photos of people sitting on the ground, uncomfortable. Yeah. So I hate I hated that um, as an artist, but then the counter argument, you know, the problem is then you're like, okay, well, I'll go join the painters in the under the bright lights, and I'll put a screen on the wall, right? And then you get, you know, I'll have the it'll be one frame, you know, that's my frame, it's video versus the painting frame. And it's a it this is where like the competition like the whole probably again the problem emerges is like okay, so people are now passing by and they're glimpsing, you know, maybe if you're lucky, two seconds of your work and you have to capture them. And then there's headphones dangling off there. So if there's audio like you're asking them to stop and now like plug themselves into the wall where they're standing and only two people can stand at a time, right? And and sit there when you know the way they treat a painting I'm not saying this is true for all paintings, right? But very few people spend more than 10 seconds, 15 seconds with a painting. Like, I encourage anyone to just, like, stop, watch, uh, like, go to the museum, watch how long people spend with each work. Surveillance. Yeah, most of the way people consume museums is they do the little wander, you know, like the slow wander. Yeah, oh, and then you stop with things that appeal to you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And actually, that's like a, a way to spot, like, uh, someone who hasn't gone to very many museums. They spend way too long. <laughs> observing like works they think are good if you ever want really to matter. see someone move fast through a museum then go with austin go with lee the, oh, really? it's insane well, yeah. and he goes so fast that he misses a lot of works he, he was in the netherlands and he's a huge fan of the dubuffet and uh, there's a huge installation of him there i think his biggest installation and he missed it because he went through the museum so fast and it's it's unmissable it's like half the museum is that installation Mm. I still love the idea of running through the museum because of Godard's yeah. uh, thing. But, um, but you know, Kristen's the same way. And but what I'll do is I'll like hone in on like, I'm, I want to look at like a specific artist or material or because if I spend, otherwise, I'm going to be exhausted by the end. Anyway, it's quite exhausting from a sensorial point yeah. of view, but also just like walking and standing for that period of time. Like it usually would take you three hours to consume a collection that's hung in any museum, right? So there has, I think that that's actually one of the problems. We shouldn't, like, museums have been positioned as a three-hour entertainment 
solution. If you know, back to Christensen and Jobs, it's like they're competing against Six Flags at Darien Lake or whatever. Yeah, the price tag is high. Yeah. The price tag is high. So it's like you could spend the day on a roller coaster or you could, you know, enter this contemplative space inside the museum. But the amount of contemplation they're asking from you is absurd, right? Like, I know. Because each of those works you probably could spend, you know, an hour, two, three contemplating. But you're, they're like, no, how about a thousand? <laughs> just like, and all of history. We want you to get it all. Like just so, it's yeah. a little bit like the fifth but element the, with like a flickering. I I, I know, do image. think uh, those big museums like the Louvre or the Met, they're they're really built to go regularly. Like maybe you go once every two weeks and check out a different area. Is it? I I think. Those kind well, that's, of so that's a different way of positioning them, and you see yeah. museums do that. I think more in Europe, where they position them as a closer, service, yeah, and almost Recurring like a public revenue. park, yeah. yeah. And so it's like this is something that you pass through, you know. It's not something but, that you stick with. But you know? do you do you think that your relationship with museums has changed since lockdown? Well, I bring all of this up because I think in the digital space, the big biggest mistake museums make is the one I just described, which is thinking that. They have to be a destination, when what they have to be is more like um, the infrastructure for culture. To you know, it, they actually have to be not a destination, but, but part of the cultural fabric of the internet. Um, and the internet is not is no longer pages and websites. Um, it's richer. It's much richer than that. It's not a carousel at the top of a web page. Like it's that's such an it's mm. literal 1990s view of what well, yeah. internet is. For example, the, as a site. the the Louisiana Museum in Denmark has really made an elaborate YouTube channel with long form interviews with all their art, uh, all the artists they show, and also writers mm. and architects, different people. So you'll just look for a certain artist, and you keep coming across them because they have these really high quality interviews. So yeah. That's one approach of like we're a channel of culture and yeah. No, and I think you see um, there's that famous PBS series. Um, what is it called? You know where they've been doing profiles for years. They used to put out DVDs actually. Um, Inside profile. the actor studio. <laughs> no, you know the one for contemporary. I don't know why it's, I'm blanking on the name, but they're they, in the time since they started as just doing PBS. Then they the DVD channel became huge. I remember when I was in grad school. People would collect the DVDs, like, oh, have you seen the latest? Yeah. You know. But but all this is still kind of pre, like, we could have talked about this before the lockdown. I, I'm just curious. No, 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 I know. But yeah. what I'm, I'm trying to chart the history of this media. But, like, one of the important caveats about what you just described is they didn't, they don't just give you the artwork They because they realize the artwork isn't the artwork if it's on video, right? They give you... They give you what can be delivered through video in yeah. that particular case, which is like an artist interview in context with the work. And it's not even can. It's like, what could we do above and beyond what we could do in person? But you're so still, I think that's, yeah. yeah, I think you're still seeing museums as as relevant institutions. But I, I'm asking yeah, you this because there. you mentioned before, like, oh, the lockdown is here. Museums are over. We don't need them. Like, that's right. Do you really feel that way? Did I mention that before? No. Yeah. i got to go through the show notes. <laughs> um, yeah, I think well, I would have been critical of the, the Fall of Museum prior to the pandemic. And the reason was that they weren't culturally responding to the moment. They were really violently saying, no, 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 this is something old that needs to be protected as a way 
of being that you can't possibly understand audience. Now, I'm not saying audience numbers were down, you know, because in some regions they were up in, in yeah, big ways. Yeah, like too busy. Yeah, like in New York and London, I think. But they are those are the exceptions. Otherwise, globally, in many regions, like the, the idea of the Destination Museum was a solution to a problem, which is like, how can you tell any of these museums apart? Why would you want to go to this museum? And so they used like architecture and sensation to draw people in. Well, it's 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 but, the same thing uh, with libraries. Like mm-hmm. do we really need storage of physical books? I talk I mean I'm part of a library innovation council and we talk about this all the time. Yeah. And actually the library decided a long time ago, at least the Toronto Public Library, that books were not their primary business. Mm-hmm. I mean like they, it was they kind of espresso was like their is their new business. Yeah, no, but actually they open like artist studios here. They have podcast recording studios. Ironically, that I've never used. So they but, they basically yeah. become an attitude and not a, a physical. They refer to themselves entity. as sort of like um, similar to that public park thing, like this public space. Yeah, where ideas are exchanged, and I think there's some museums that have tried to do that and it's kind of cheesy like the serpentine's famous with um you know Hans Ulrich Obrist or whatever right where he's like got his like 7:30 club a.m. club i don't know if he's even still doing that stuff or putting out you know they're the putting brutally out early books. club yeah the brutally early club and the whole thing was like there's a media universe built around the museum you know the la la gaité lyrique i think which was the parisian oh, yeah. Um, museum was like we're going to be more like a magazine than a museum. So museums, the, I think, had, were yeah. already in a crisis. Is all I Maria Bamford has this funny joke about uh, Portland being a place where you can violently agree with everyone. <laughs> <laughs> you can just get together and say like, "You hate Trump? Me too. Yeah, fuck that guy." And I feel like museums are the same thing. We're like museums yeah. are a place of exchange of ideas, but I don't think there's any exchange of ideas. It's just like. Yeah, you hate those right wingers. Yeah, me too. Fuck them. I, just, that's I about think you it. have a problem if you're in any industry and the, there's a whole category designed to critique you. Called in the, in the case of museums, institutional critique is a category yeah. part that the museums <laughs> show. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a problem at that point. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Meta, meta but I, I feel like people don't really disagree at any of those events. <laughs> They're like, no. yeah, this museum sucks that we're in, but what do we have? Yeah. What else do we have? It's a place for violent ag- agreement. Yeah. But I think what else we have, you know, in the 1990s, and we've talked about this a few times, people are like, well, you know, there's this thing called relational aesthetics. What we have is the relative. Yeah. And, um, you know, maybe, just maybe, they're like the ideas that we've previously talked about in the 1960s are also relevant that, like, you don't need someone to tell you something's important. You can kind of yeah. experience it and determine for yourself. But, but so one of the things when I started out with the internet and, uh, a big part of why I love the internet is that there's no gatekeepers. That was, I thought, was fantastic. You can just start on your own and find your own audience. Mm-hmm. And as the internet has gone on for the decades, we also see the downside of that with the f- fake news and there's no authority, so which source do you trust and all that thing. But at the same time, the idea of a physical panel talk with 40 people in the audience versus just doing a clubhouse with maybe a thousand people, mm-hmm. it, there's this tipping point where I feel like there's no way back. Like after you've done clubhouse and people don't have to get into a cab to see you, it's just really hard to imagine that being effective or, or thrilling. I think that like we're dancing around the, the number one service a museum provides that has nothing to do with art. And that is 
human connection like an excuse to spend time with another human being, right? And I think in some in European museums and a lot of American ones, they started to realize that by reorganizing around a, an afternoon, a Sunday afternoon. Mm. What does a Sunday af- Sunday afternoon looks like? It looks like you get brunch, then you go to the museum, and then maybe you stand, you sit for coffee there. Then you go browse the books, right? You bring home a, a tote bag by a, by a designer. So they already resigned that the museum is just the you know kind of the the excuse to have this broader or larger experience. And it's so also a photo stage. Yeah. Don't forget about that. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, to no, that's a really good point. Which is like, and to virtue signal that I am of a cultured class that finds this experience to be greater than. And I think, and I don't want to be... Yeah, it's like some know, people go to NASCAR and take a selfie and some people will go to the museum. So it's a, yeah, so I would argue that it's the museum, I've always argued this is you, right? Like you are constructing your identity through the museum. Um, and the museum is, is, is complicit in that and they're happy to do that. Um, but the museum doesn't even exist because of your ticket, which is the irony of this whole thing. That none of it is funded by you. <laughs> like you think you're actually going out there and doing a good thing for the museum. Museum could give a shit about your ticket. Like your ticket sales represent 25% of their, their revenue. So most of their revenues coming through other sources. Yeah, but they, they need account. to show the visitor numbers to get the other sources. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so you're like a means to an end. But I don't yeah. think anyone thinks of it that way. I think you go to the museum thinking you're like helping the arts. Um, but but, like, but uh, we're, we're both people who acknowledge that you can have a meaningful cultural experience on the screen way yeah. before the pandemic. And I think yeah, so, the pandemic was a tipping point. But I, I, of course... I'm biased. I'm biased to think uh, no, the experience no, no, online is great, but but so so where's you know, the disruption? We had <clears> been disrupt- we had been yeah. doing the push-ups and getting ready for this. Uh, get, we were warming up for two decades, mm-hmm. and it's like in in like you know kind of entrepreneurial circles, it would be like called like a disint- disintermediating event, which is like this is a point at which there's a major disruption in the way people perceive both value and consumption um, of a product, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And the, and, and the bricks and mortar suddenly are called into question, not as a strength, but as a weakness. And I think that's when things can get really interesting yeah. and why you saw innovation, and I hate to use that word a little bit, but like occur. Like we did see experimentation and we saw an explosion in a new form, which is the NFT, but there were other things that people experimented with that didn't work out. Yeah. For example, a lot of people tried to do live experiences on the internet, like live streams. I don't think anyone no. is like watching no. the live stream I, stuff. I've, I've never thought, I think live maybe works for huge events like the Super Bowl. But mm-hmm. overall, I think one of the conveniences is that it is this huge DVR and you can watch anytime you want. That's the power of YouTube. It's not live. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can send it to someone and it's not like they missed it. Like, oh, check out this movie. Yeah. And so yeah. when you take away that power of like, oh, watch it a little later. Well, I keep thinking like when I when I start, like when I launch my Fire TV or whatever, the live tab is like this tiny tab off to the right or whatever. Like, <laughs> it's an afterthought. And, yeah. So, you know, why would the cultural sector, what gives them the right? Like, I, No, I know. I, I, I've, I've always thought it, it's a small thing, but people make online exhibitions and they would mimic the real world and send out an invite and say, this will open in five days. I'm like, what the hell? Why doesn't it just open when you <laughs> click the link? 
What, why do you build this friction? And so the, yeah. the funny thing is that the computer world is always about removing friction. Anyway, like make it easier to shop, make it easier to do an update to a software, make it easier to uh, upgrade something. And the art world is always about adding barriers. Mm-hmm. You can view this, but only at this moment in this region. It's like going back to DVD regions. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. But I, I would, I'll flip it on its head for a second here and say, Let's like, flip it. They, they've got it backward, right? Like, and this has been proven, which is you don't want to create scarcity up front. You want to create scarcity on the, on the follow through. So you don't want the archive. The archive is the problem in terms of value, right? So, and this, like, I'm just hinting at what is now called the drop. Like, but the drop has been evidenced as, and this is part and parcel of an NFT, right? As like, that is actually the exclusivity that people are seeking, which is like, and whether it's right or wrong, like, we'll get to that in a second. But, you know, so instead of saying, you have to be here at this time to have this experience, it's saying, we're going to put this experience up, you can watch it whenever you want, but it's not going to be there for very long. And you're going to determine how long it's there for, right? Like these sneakers are going to be launching on this day. We're going to tell you way but ahead that's, of time. That's a little bit, uh, that's the speculation side of it. But uh, you, a big difference of, you know, NFTs are the market part of digital art. And so yeah. if you look at the market part of physical art, one of the downsides is that a lot of it goes into crates and is invisible for a long time. And so if you miss the drop, you miss on the trade, but you could always view the work after. So there's, it's if you compare it to an art auction, at a, a physical art auction, you might miss the event, and, but you can't see the work afterwards. You can only see a picture of it. Well, the idea of creating urgency is just like it's baked into all of these libraries now. Like if you are, you know, if you're using like this, there's like an Xbox cloud gaming service that's become quite popular. It's like 10 bucks a month and you get hundreds of games. But what they do is like every week, some games disappear. So, you know, it creates the urgency that you have to consume for over this period of time because what they're trying to drive is engagement. But what happens with a live event is you're saying you have to be here. And if you miss it, okay, then you can watch the video of that event. But now you've missed the excitement of it being live. And by the mm-hmm. way, it's going to be there forever. So you defer ever watching it. And it, and it loses, yeah, I think, any of its contextual value. I think one of the things that is difficult for the art world is... It, the art world, in theory, is uh, quality over quantity. So the funding often is not tied to visitor numbers, and you might have something that... It, it's, it's very niche and high expertise and academia, that, that kind of vibe. Hmm. And then when you translate that to an Instagram Live and you have the director of a biennial doing an Instagram live and there's only 11 people watching. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, that still doesn't mean that the whole project isn't powerful and that it works better in the museum. But when there's literally 11 people on Instagram live and one person leaves and another person and it's down to nine, so you just lost 15% of your visitors. Yeah. It's so it's so cringe. And then you have some young people who are organizing stuff on Discord or Clubhouse and they have hundreds of people. It, it's one of those areas where, um, and I think we saw that also a lot with the auctions of NFTs, that the one currency doesn't translate into the other. The, the fact that this is, is shown in a very prestigious building doesn't translate to people on Clubhouse. 
Yeah, but I just think it's ignorant to assume you've earned an audience when you haven't done any investment. Like, so, like, you haven't invested in it. For example, like, if a Do you know who I am? (laughs) Exactly. But if a museum just opened, like, a food truck, you know, as a museum in a city, not that many people would find out about it, right? Like, instead, they go big. They're like, we're going to get the biggest architect and we're going to build, we're going to put it right in the center of the city. And you can't miss it because, you know, you have to pass through the center. Like, they really figured out how to position for visibility and impact, right? Yeah, but and, and also... That's what I'm saying. They yeah. haven't done that. And I don't think... You know, I love obscure stuff, and I love finding stuff that other people don't know. That's quite thrilling as an audience to find a YouTube that is hilarious that only has 10 views. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with things being obscure, but it's that imbalance of these two currencies where uh, you have someone who's flown around in private jets to curate a show... And then they go to Instagram and they're the least popular. And it's just this weird moment of truth. Yeah. And I think ultimately, to your point, it's not that there are artists that are attract, aren't like there are artists attracting large audiences, right? And the museums don't understand. They're like, well, they must not be artists, right? They're more like entertainers or something like that. But what those artists realized a long time ago is that they are offering, they have to compete against everything else on the internet, right? The same way a museum competes against six flags right and they know that on the internet you're competing against a, a vast ocean of different people who want yeah attention. but I, yeah. I do also think that the strength of the internet is the amount of choice that you have so in a way you're not competing because the internet is not about broadcasting it's, niches. it's, about, it's about niches yeah and so i think there's nothing wrong with doing an instagram live with 10 people it's just Funny when you're used to it coming from this institution that seems so powerful. But if we redesign the museum with the internet in mind, first of all, you would recognize the niche and you would have like SEO pages for everyone in the niches. So you'd be like, you'd restructure your museum website to be like, okay, I'm going to do the data page. I'm going to do the like, I'm going to do the like modernist brutalist page. I'm going to do the fluxus page. I'm going to do the internet artist page and I'm and I'm going to do I'm going to create a whole universe of media around that cuz I want my backlinks to show up when someone does a Google search and then I'm going to do retargeted ads that really draw people into an idea and I'm going to bring those ideas forward through programming that reveals itself like incrementally as we like watch the user go through their journey like there's a whole bunch of there's a whole bunch of savviness in terms of like how people um, and how companies manage, manage experiences online that I haven't seen any museum really actually recognize. And in fact, I've seen the opposite, them turn their nose up at it. I'm like, gonna, yeah. I want to make it more personal for a second. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. How much did you miss museums during the lockdown? Out of everything you missed? Hmm. I mean, I miss going with a friend, like I said earlier. Like, I think of it as a social activity. It's like yeah. a thing to so do. So that's still a value. Like that, Having the- coffee with a friend is yeah, always going to be a value. And seeing art together, and if it triggers a conversation, this is what I'm saying. It's like, need the conversation for the museum to have value, that's all. Yeah, but you also need the museum for a certain type of conversation or meeting a certain type of friend. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean... One of the things I really missed immediately with the pandemic was travel and being able to travel to exhibitions. Um, but also, I, I still, it, there's just, it, it's very, um, 
there are these contradictions. So I, I love making exhibitions, but I also know that the reach of the exhibitions is so small and that in reality, you're not making an exhibition, you're making a photo of the exhibition. Mm-hmm. That's just, that's the thing, that's the informational unit that has traction. Like, that's, we, we can talk about the benefits of either all day long, but that's the reality. That's what people see, that's what your peers see, that's how people perceive you, that's how people follow mm. you and 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 also most of your work disappears so that's the body of work in the end is is what goes in a book or you know it's the the collection of images um yeah, so even if like um would yeah. a restaurant think of a of food that way is food just a photo or is that's a good question i mean i do think there's tons of restaurants especially in nolita where i used to live that really designed the restaurant to be photographed like mm-hmm. it, it, there was the millennial pink and all of a sudden all the coffee shops are completely pink and and they'll have like a neon catchphrase on the wall saying like live a little and treat yourself. But are those, are those it, the restaurants you want to go back to? Like just you? No, or? no, no. I mean, I took you to Kokoron and it, it, it looks like a prison camp. But it's it's the best place, cool. but it's not very photogenic. But what's the best thing about it? Like what are the things? Yeah, the food and the people. Mm-hmm. The experience overall. Yeah, no, but the, the the actual people that they're food nerds and they're very excited and they're not so commercial and the, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you actually like the food. The food was great. I thought it was amazing. Yeah. No, th- that's very true. But I, I, I think just my general feeling going back to exhibitions is that there's there's many different uh, types of exhibitions. So I would go to Chelsea and I would see exhibition of Cory Archangel and Simon Denny and I was genuinely interested and I was happy to see the shows and it was better than seeing it on Instagram and it was good to see it and then there's a different type of show that is very speculative in nature and the works are not that interesting but what it's really set up for sales you just know this is not historic work this is not critical work but it's really meant to sell and so Mm. for most people it's just money hanging on the wall but there's and also the, like a no no like, it, it, it just yeah. after the the lockdown you're like this is much more efficient as an NFT like right. in this in the same way that I think charity events seem really silly now because you can do a charity NFT without all the cost tied to a charity event and then all the money actually goes to the charity so it just seems really wasteful to do an event with catering and journalists and what helicopters and whatever yeah it's just ignorant of you know, that's like one form of capital that's ignorant of the social capital. That was, that's my argument um, in that, like, if you went to Chelsea and y- the reason you're going to Chelsea and you're touring all the shows is to get some idea of the heartbeat, culturally speaking, like what is now? And, you know. Yeah, the- but but can you really compete with the, the heartbeat? Because the internet is, is so fast. That's what I'm saying. But like yeah. the reason Chelsea was relevant for so long was the actual expense of mounting 100 shows in Chelsea, like the amount of investment in the people that were showing. And I'm not saying they're the right or the wrong people, but resulted in like, okay, this must be important because people are saying it's important and they're putting their time and money behind yeah, the, it. Yeah, the, there's this uh, uh, barrier that, okay, it means you hung something on the wall. It means you really mean it. It's not. It's not bullshit. Like you really believe in it. Yeah. Whereas the internet, in theory, and this is where I think the NFT thing maybe we can cap it in a, in an interesting way is like, in theory, the internet is this is a, like a sketchbook, right? 
Um, but the NFT says, you know, we're going to actually fix that sketch as like, we're going to make it hard. We're yeah, make like sure that, that you know that this is a serious that's thing. That's a good point, because I think a lot of artists have tons of works on their hard disk, and then they have to decide, which one do I mint? Mm-hmm. That's I the mean, way I felt you like went through that process. You're like, okay, yeah. I have my old videos, I have my new videos, what should I post? And then there's a barrier, a mental barrier. Yeah, there's a huge psychological barrier. And that psychological barrier is both time, attention, money, because it costs like 200 bucks. So it, it's not, I don't know if you ever use this program called MailChimp. It's like a yeah, marketing program. Yeah. When you go to send a campaign, there's this like oh, yeah. the funny animation of the a monkey hand? big button with a shaking finger. Like, should I press this button? Are you sure? Um, are you sure you want to do this? And I think, that, you know, it's skin in the game, right? Like, so. As opposed to something like risk. Twitter, where it's, it's uh, really designed for you to just blur about anything at any moment and or even Snapchat even more because it's ephemeral. Yeah. So, yeah. And so in, in software design, we talk about friction and you don't always want to reduce friction. I know in this podcast, we've often talked about convenience and reducing friction. And even in this episode, yeah. we talked about convenience and that. But actually at times in digital experiences, we want to in- increase friction significantly because either, you know, in a lot of cases, you want people to be aware of an error that might occur or a mistake they might make that might be irreversible. Yeah, and but, I, I think that's exactly how podcasts are so different from Twitter. Like Twitter is all about reacting in a microsecond and podcasts mm. you do once a week or once every two weeks and it's long you sit for in the bath. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. Some people just have it on in the background. And I know some of you are trying to go to sleep right now listening to our sleeping <laughs> voices. But um no, but I think that friction is part of creating attention. And if we go back if we double back on the museum and the black room with the curtains, that's the wrong friction in the wrong context, right? Um, and you can, in the right friction, you know, potentially for people is on the internet where everything is potentially a garbage sketchbook thing, or even it's a good thing, but it's just in volume. You want to create some attention scarcity. And I mentioned the drop, but the NFT also does it. Some frame that says, no, 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 I've really thoughtfully considered what what's happening here. Yeah. But and it, 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 it feels to it. me like this was a leap in, as far as acknowledging reality, like reality yeah. is that we are glued to our screens and let's admit it yeah but i still think it's just the beginning in terms of taking the medium seriously i think that's going to take a long time until all the big name artists don't see nfts or, or the digital as uh, a marketing gimmick but really see it as their primary medium and I, i've been seeing more conceptual artists working with technology like people mm. who are, are coming from the gallery world and treating technology and even the internet as, as part of the work and not just documentation. Um, and I, I think this is just the beginning. It's just people growing up with it. It'll all feel natural, but yeah. Yeah. There was I mean, a time, there was a time when people got in their car and drove to Sears, you know, to buy like an ugly dress or washer or dryer or something like that. Now, what do they do today? Right. They research online they talk, you know, they read reviews and then they probably order it online. It gets delivered to their house, right? Like, um, and they're not using Sears. It actually probably got retargeted to them by Instagram or whatever, right? Like there's a there's a whole series of things that happened in other industries that's just starting to happen in the arts. And I'm not saying that, like, I, I just, I think the main point I want to make is that like art for some reason believes it's the exception to everything <laughs> yeah as, as, which is like, kind of cool it's kind of a, it is it is a cool thing yeah it's definitely like there's like i've got a you know it's like a nerd with a pro- pocket protector or something like that like 
we definitely need this pocket protector because what if this pen breaks and we get like ink all over us, right? <laughs> so it's always cautious in that way. We should make um, a good point pocket protector. <laughs> awesome, yeah. It's like, and it says museum, just like in, in little tiny. Like, yeah. Yes, this is what the museum is, the pocket protector. But it's a pocket protector for history, right? That's the position it takes. But in doing so, sometimes it misses the opportunity to push culture forward. And I, my big fear or worry statement is always like, why do we need to draw these lines? It's absurd. I'm, why don't you get get in the pool? You know, I'm not so... Uh, that part, I'm actually not worried about. I, I don't mm. think... I think if museums... To me, museums are churches for atheists. That's all they are. So you don't go there to see the latest headlines. Mm, you go there to calm down and to uh, experience your piece. senses. Yeah. yeah. Recenter. This is what it's all about. Mm. Yeah. Not even this is Good what point. it's all about. This is what, what being is. So it, it, there's a difference. So I don't think you go there for answers. Same way you don't go to church for answers. You just go there to chill out and be with your people and mm. experience some beauty. That's a good uh, point. Yeah. But the question is, can you have a religious experience on the internet or on, through a screen? Yeah, exactly. So maybe that's maybe something for the next episode, because I, I have to go. <laughs> Let's leave you hanging, yeah. You have to go to dinner, right? Yeah, but can you have that profound... But actually, a, a friend of mine used to... He was a manager of programming, and he worked for the Catholic Church in uh, France, and they were really advanced with video compression way back, and they were licensing all their technology the TV channels, because people view sermons online a lot. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And, and the church has definitely embraced technology. And he, he said there was just this room filled with monks in monk robes that were all programming the, the streaming uh, technology. <laughs> yeah. So it's no, kind of right. <clears throat> a William Gibson view of like a, a, a French monastery where people are coding. But uh, No, yeah. I think you're making a really good point, which is that religion people might not realize like is actually extremely technologically mediated today oh yeah they're, they're super savvy yeah joel osteen um, is huge on youtube but you reminded me like before we go bill viola uh video artist started in this you know 70s and 80s and um it made works increasingly that were about creating a religious experience or connection to video yeah. but um, he's a good he's a very good example of someone who uh, started before the internet and will always see the internet as a, a compromised version of his work. That's right. So he's like, no, li- you have to v- view this in the in the temple and not on your device. And what I find hilarious about it is the technologies that he was referring to as superior and worthy of a temple are now like $100 <laughs> in the Walmart yeah. like, discount aisle, like clearance. Yeah. So I, th- I think you know. this topic is infinite, and there's a lot going. I, I just wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to have this episode as a marker, and maybe we'll revise. Yeah, we'll, we'll 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 get back to it in a year or two years, and see like was this a profound change or was this a hiccup, and we'll see. Yeah, um, but you know, like we're long gamers on the internet, so um, yeah, we'll be around. I'm, a, I'm an expanded media person, so like I actually don't think the internet stops at the edges of the screen. No, so, and anyway, uh, yeah, and uh, I. I also think I've heard so many people like when cell phones came along, they were like, "Oh, that's a fad. No one's gonna, you know, that's that's not." And then the iPhone comes along, it's like, "Oh, that's never gonna work." Da da da. So whenever people project that something digital is gonna shrink, mm-hmm. they're usually wrong. So when people say like, "Oh, this MySpace thing, it'll be over," and it was over, but then face, you know, the digital just doesn't seem to shrink. No, no, it's not going anywhere. I think that it's silly even to draw lines between what's digital and what's not. 
Um, but anyway, that is a topic, yeah. a larger topic, and uh, yeah, we'll get back to it. Okay. Well, thank you for listening, and the next time we'll do a listener question. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank Bye bye. Thank you.